So this Sunday is going to be our final Sunday in 2 Samuel, and I'm sort of treating it like a bridge, uh, and I'm probably trying to do too much, but essentially this is the end of our focus in 2 Samuel uh, that we're going to take next week is going to be the anniversary service, then we're going to do a couple weeks on our discipleship acronym, which is called ABLE. So it stands for A is attend. What are practices that help us attend to the presence of Jesus? B, what are practices that help us become a blessing in the world? L is practices that help us learn about the scriptures and ourselves. And E is eating, right, which we'll get into. Anyway, the point is this Sunday is kind of this transitional Sunday between these able discipleship ones, finishing out sort of this life of David side. And so I'm sort of doing a combo where I'm going to hit one of our able topics, which is how we learn about our own stories. And how our stories actually become raw material that God uses in our discipleship and our formation. And I'm going to use David's life, which we've been covering. And specifically, uh, 2 Samuel 12, David's, well, actually Nathan coming to confront David about what he did with Uriah and Bathsheba to talk about this. Now, my end goal at the end of this sermon is for all of us to see our personal stories and our experiences as raw material that God uses to help us grow. I'm going to try and illustrate it by three different points. One, that our stories act as mirrors. Two, they affect our choices and they shape our personal rhythms. So they act as mirrors, they affect our choices, and they shape our rhythms. We'll get to each of those in turn. Right now I want to focus on stories and mirrors My goal at the end of this sermon is that you're a little more curious about your own story and God's invitation to you as you look at it. Make sense? You're like, well, if it doesn't, here we go anyway. All right, stories as mirrors. So last week, Aaron talked about the story of David and his affair with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband, Uriah. Right? If you weren't here, I'll do the quick summary. So David is king in Israel. Second Kings 11, 2-3 tells us that one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. He learns that he, she is married and yet, despite this, David calls for her and she gets pregnant. Now, David calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from war so that he can sort of cover up what has just happened. But Uriah's this super integrous, really faithful guy, and he actually won't go into his home because his friends, his brothers, are on the war front. And he's like, how could I enjoy the comforts of home when my brothers are out on the war front? So instead, David is in a bind. So he decides, you know what I'm going to do? He writes Joab, who's like the general leading the forces at the front, and he tells him this, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. All y'all in the military know just murdered another human being, By the end of chapter 11 in verse 27, the text says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord 
even if David himself doesn't seem all that displeased by his own actions. Now, what does God do? You have this guy who's done these pretty horrendous things, but he's also the king of Israel with basically unlimited power. So God sends a prophet, this guy named Nathan, to David, and he tells him a story. You know, knock, knock. Hey, prophet, let me tell you a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who came to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. If you're looking for a place to sit, there's plenty up here, but this is arguably toxic waste zone. So there's plenty of holes up here if you want to come up. All right. Now, David hears this story, this parable, and he's engaged at the injustice. The text says, verse 5, then David's anger, the first time he seems to feel anything. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. What's fascinating is this prophet Nathan comes up to David and he tells him this story. And David clearly has a sense of justice in him, right? Like, this is wrong. No pity. He's angry. What we would call righteous anger. But David's response to this story is totally disconnected from his own story, his own personal experience of what he has just done. Even though this story mirrors incredibly closely David's experience, he totally misses it. He's like so disconnected from his own story, he doesn't get all the links, right? David sends Uriah into battle. God sends Nathan. David walks on the rooftop, and in the parable, the traveler, literally in Hebrew, walker, visits the rich man. Both, use this, the story, both stories use the words to eat and to drink. The lamb is like a daughter to the man. Bathsheba is the daughter of Iliam. David lies with Bathsheba. The man cuddles or lies right, with the, the lamb at night. The rich man takes the lamb. David takes Bathsheba. You have all these parallels. David totally misses it. That is until Nathan says to him in verse 7, You are the man. And then he continues, This is what the God of Israel says to you, verses 7 through 9. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. 
What I find so fascinating about this right, is that God uses a story, Nathan's parable, to act as a mirror to David about his own life and his own story. Right? Nathan's story about the lamb becomes a mirror so that David can see his life differently. And if you think about it, Scripture does this all the time for us. Tim Mackey, a Bible project, says that the characters in the Bible are not so much role models. If you grew up in church, often you read these stories in the Bible and you think, oh, there's a role model I should live up to. This is a role model I should lift up to. Right? And what they do is they cut and paste all these great moments in these heroes' lives, quote-unquote. But in reality, when you read the Scriptures, these are fallen, broken people just like us. And these people in their lives act like mirrors so that we can see ourselves. And their complexity, their moments of great success and their moments of great failure. These stories in the Bible invite us to look at our own lives, our own stories, our experience, and reflect on who we are and what we're doing and where we are at in our own journey. Here, Nathan tells a story to David so he can see himself more clearly, his actions, his story from God's perspective. Also notice that right after the parable, God through the prophet actually retells David his own story. You notice that? Right? I, says God, delivered you from the hand of Saul, the former king who tried to kill you multiple times. Remember that? I gave you this palace. This wasn't your hard work, David. I gave it to you, says God. I gave you a family. I gave you responsibility over this nation, and yet, despite, right, his generosity, David steals a woman from a married man and then proceeds to kill that man by the hand of the Amorites. And what God does is he helps David to reflect on his own life so that he can see his actions his story, his experience from God's perspective. And what happens? David writes in response to this one of the most powerful psalms in the whole Psalter, the poems and the prayer book of the Old Testament. Have mercy on me, God! According to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. What before he did not even see, now he sees as a transgression against the holiness and goodness of God. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Maybe not. About two minutes ago, David, it wasn't before you. But now what he's doing is he's seeing his story according to God's perspective and he realized that his sin has been following him the whole time. He just didn't know it. God holds a mirror to David, to his life to his story, 
so that he can see his own life, his own actions from God's perspective and hear God's invitation to him. Essentially, David, your heart has wandered and with it, your actions come back to me. The thing is, God does the same thing to us. He invites us to look at our lives. He invites us to look at our lives from his perspective so that we can hear his invitation to us. Now, rarely is it so stark and intense as this moment. Like, I don't know when the last time a prophet showed up at your door and told you a parable. Happened to me last week, but it hadn't happened a while before that. No, just kidding. But the thing is, the same principle applies. God invites us to look at our stories so we can see it from his perspective so that our hearts can be more aligned, aligned with Jesus and his kingdom. Um, you know, as, as many of you know, I was on sabbatical for the last month, I guess. And uh, the truth is, it took me a couple weeks to adjust. And I was about maybe 10 days in and I was up early one morning and I was, I was praying and I just realized I had all this fear in me, right? I'm supposed to be on sabbatical. Why am I fearful? Why am I worried? Why am I anxious? I was trying to just slow down and be with Jesus in it. And I just had this moment where I realized I was afraid that I was doing something wrong on this sabbatical. And God invited me actually to go back into my story. What am I worried about? Well, see, I grew up with an authority figure in my life that was very unpredictable. And if I got out of line just a little bit, I would get a lot of anger towards me. And I was constantly worried. And I realized about 10 days into this sabbatical, I was worried that the elders or the people above me would say, Tony, we gave you this gift and you totally screwed it up. I was worried that I was going to get in trouble. I remember circling back to Jesus and I was like, wow, no wonder this is like so hard to enjoy. <laughs> and I felt like the Spirit said to me as I was reflecting on my story, Tony, this sabbatical is not a performance. It's a gift. Enjoy it. And it was this pivot in the whole month for me. I realized, oh, wait, I can just enjoy this gift. I didn't carry this pressure, this fear, this worry, this anxiety that someone, when I came back, would say, you know what? You didn't do it right. My story became a mirror. Became a mirror to how I was living and how I was relating to God and this thing that was meant to be a gift and a break. Point one, right? Stories act as mirrors. The second point is this stories also affect our choices. See, we make choices based on our stories, our experiences, right? The scriptures don't give us a super clear window into why David does what he does with Bathsheba and Uriah. We don't know exactly. Maybe he just hadn't had this kind of power before, and now he's like, wow, I can do whatever I want, and no one is going to stop me. 
He wouldn't be the first person in history to be corrupted by power, right? But you also wonder, when David goes on that rooftop, whether maybe he just feels a little lonely. His best friend had been killed in battle. His best friend is dead, the one he related to more intimately than anyone. And then immediately after that, he becomes king. How is he going to form a friendship as a king? Everyone is in line trying to get something from him. Can you imagine how lonely it would be? Your best friend is dead and now you're in this position of power. How do you form an intimate, close friendship? So you go up on a, on a rooftop and you see, maybe I can connect with this person in my loneliness. And we don't know exactly how you connect these dots. But when you actually zoom out and look at David's story more broadly, you can see actually how his story influences his choices in multiple ways. You remember how David is first introduced to us in the scriptures? Right, Samuel's going out. He's trying to find the new king. He goes to Jesse's house. And there's all these brothers out there. And Samuel's like, oh man, it must be that one. He's big, he's strong, whatever. He goes through all of them. And he asks, he asks Jesse, do you have any other kids? And you kind of get this sense that like, there's this other kid who's not really noticed and paid attention to. I guess there's another one. He's out with the sheep. Right, the forgotten one is David. He's out with the sheep. And you wonder whether David even carries some of this loneliness throughout his life. More, more clearly, you see how David's time in the fields as a shepherd sort of shapes him when he's confronted with Goliath. Right? All the other Israelites are terrified. They're trembling, it says. But David, because of his time as a shepherd, says this to Saul, the king, as he desires to go fight Goliath. He says this, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And what we see here is that David's story, his experience, uniquely prepares him for this moment with Goliath. Right? Unlike the other people around him who are trembling, David, because of his experience as a shepherd, now actually goes out with his sling and opposes Goliath. And I think we can all relate a little bit, right? Not to fighting giants, but how our experience, our story, shapes our choices. The colleges we select, the jobs we pick, the spouses we marry, our calling in life. Look back at your story and you'll see this intricate web of dominoes leading from one thing to the other. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Now, the Greek word here used for workmanship is poema. Know that word? Poem. It's where we get the English word poem, right? In the New Testament, it refers to us as God's living poems written by God. So we're not just the product of two parents, but we are all the work of God. Paul's point is that God has designed and shaped all of us. Not just by birth, genetically, but also in life, through our experiences. We are formed into masterpiece poems which shape what we do, the choices we make, and what we're called to walk in, right? The good works God has called us to do are shaped by our experiences. But I think if we're honest, most of us find reading the poems we are and our stories to be a little challenging. What exactly has God shaped us to be, to do, to accomplish? You know, these good works, what are they? How do I walk in them? When I was in 10th grade, I had um, an English teacher, Miss Selvin. And I remember her particularly because she taught me how to study poetry. And what I remember so distinctly is I would just like read a poem and be like, oh, I think that's the point. And she taught me to actually study the words, to break it down, to see the connections. And I was reminded of Miss Selvin because I think actually when we turn to look at our stories, it takes a little more work than we're used to. When I was on sabbatical, one of the things that we did a lot of uh, that I wasn't expecting was learn about mining. See, in California, when you, like, learn about mining, let's say in California history or whatever, you, like, you, you basically go out to a river and you, like, do that, like, whatever, sifting or whatever. What do you? Sleuthing. Thank you. My family has become experts on this. Uh, and, you know, you sleuth and you sort of have this idea of, like, people just, like, went to the river and they got this chunk of gold and they made it rich, right? Like, yes. In Colorado, they did that for about a week, and then they started doing this thing called hard rock mining. Hard rock mining is very different. You go into a mountain with a pickaxe and dynamite and all kinds of things, and you try and go in there. And then once you're in there, you like get all these rocks, and it's melded and molded with like gold and silver, and then you need to take it to the plant. And then the plant, they smash it all up, and they have to like sort it out. And the point is this. It's a long process. And I think some of us expect in our discipleship to Jesus that we'll just be able to go to our story, show up at the river, and get this big nugget of gold. But in reality our formation, our discernment, the raw materials God has given us in our story often is a little more like hard rock mining. You have to be willing to go in the mountain with your little pickaxe, break off pieces, and then once you break off the piece, then you kind of got to break it apart so you can sort out the gold from all the other rock. I had a mentor a number of years ago uh, named Terry Walling when I was in my doctoral program at Fuller, and he uh, 
give me this exercise that I have found to be super helpful. I think it's a good way to mine our stories. It's a good way to sort of unpack and digest the poems of our lives. It's called a timeline exercise. I sort of put in the process up here. Um, and then I have handouts, I, both the exits, if you're interested in trying this. It's a five-step process. Step one is you write like the major people, events, and places of your life on individual post-it notes. I think there should be a, there you go. Just write these things on individual post-it notes, maybe 30 to 50. You know, if, if you're 80, don't do 100 of them. Stick to 30 to 50, okay? This is just sort of free association, major people, places, events of your life. Two, once you've done that, low pressure, don't try and like hit a A plus at step one. Step two, organize those post-its chronologically, right? Vertically, ideally, if it'll help, on like a, you know, one of those big like folding science presentation in 10th or 11th grade, what are those called? Trifold. Thank you, audience. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> uh, write them chronologically on a trifold. Then what you do, once you have them there, is then now create a title for each chapter of your life. Just invite the Holy Spirit. What, God, was this chapter of my life about? 30 to 50, organize chronologically, come up with a chapter. And then in the presence of God, maybe with community, sharing with other people your individual stories, identify what is God trying to teach you in each of those major chapters or seasons of your life? What are the things God is teaching you that you're having a hard time learning who is the person you are becoming in each of those chapters? And then I would invite you, maybe this takes a few weeks, like don't plan on doing this in an hour. Look for patterns then. As you see the things, you know, what are the lessons I'm having a really hard time learning? Oh, I see it there, I see it there, I see it there. I personally, you know, you want to see an actual example. I have one in my office, and I go back to that once a year, maybe, every other year, and I add new post-its. I re-try and look at what is God doing in my life. One of the cool things about it is it's visual and interactive, and you can keep it, and you can go back to it. I think this is one of the great tools for figuring out how do I mine my story, Point one, right, stories act as mirrors. Point two, stories, our stories shape our choices. And three, stories inform our rhythms. As a shepherd boy, right, David spends a lot of time alone in the hills. I don't think what he needs in that moment is solitude. In that season of his life, that's not what he needed. But when he gets into the palace, it might be. It's got servants everywhere. Maybe he needs more time alone. Certainly, David, when he had Jonathan, he had a good friend. But then when he becomes king, it's clear. David needs more community. 
He needs real friends that are going to step in in the midst of him talking or sending Uriah to the front lines. He's actually getting someone else's wife into the palace. He needs real friends that are not just saying, yes, sir, but are saying, David, what are you doing? So that God doesn't need to send a prophet afterwards so that he can repent. Wouldn't it have been so much nicer if David had true friends that could have, on day one, when he's out on the, the rooftop, be like, hey, dude, what are you doing out here? We all need friends like that. David certainly did in that moment of his life. One wonders whether David, after Jonathan died, kept people at arm's distance because he was afraid of getting hurt again. One wonders whether the loneliness that he was sort of shaped by as a shepherd, forgotten by his dad, whether that shaped the way he sought comfort later in life. David needed community. I think another thing he really needed as a habit or a rhythm in that season was learning how to practice mercy and justice. If you read through the scriptures, particularly Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19 even prescribes a scripture practice for kings so that they don't elevate themselves above other people. Exactly what David does. Deuteronomy 19 says this, he shall read it all the days of his life. He shall be reading the Torah, shall be reading the law that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statues and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted above his brothers. David clearly doesn't take this very seriously. There's so many prescriptions in the Torah about caring for the marginalized, about caring for image bearers of God. And yet David elevates himself once he gets power above his brothers, sends Uriah to the front. Clearly, David needed practices that would humble him, <laughs> rhythms that would ground him in God's justice and mercy. But with that said, David is a complex character, like all of us. One of the things we do often with the scriptures is we reduce these characters to one-dimensional characters that are like either all bad or all good. David's complex. He might not have had a good community practice. He might not have had a very good uh, practice of justice and mercy. But he did have a lifelong habit of playing music and writing prayers. Right? One doesn't write Psalm 51 right after Nathan arrives without practicing writing one's prayers over time. This is something David did. And when you flip through the Psalms, you'll notice, right, nearly half of the 150 Psalms are written by him. This is likely something he began as a boy. If you go back to his story, right, he's a part-time musician for the king as a young boy. I mean, that's like Juilliard quality. You don't become a musician for the king unless you are legit. He's playing for the king. He's probably writing his prayers. This is a rhythm and a practice David did throughout his life. My point is this, right? David's story informed his rhythms. 
his habits. Some, like writing music, were easy for him. Things he just kind of did. Others, he really needed to have implemented, but didn't. Right? Some practices we develop through, as a young people and we carry throughout our whole lives and they're easy for us. Some, depending on the season, are necessary in some seasons and less in others. And there are other practices that we need to work on and we struggle with for our whole life. Right? Anyone who's married or has a roommate for a long period of time knows that there are certain things that are just harder for you to do. There are two questions as we sort of look at our own stories and how they shape our rhythms that I think are worth considering. One is this. What spiritual practices have I prioritized in my life? Right? In David's life, it would probably be some sort of song or prayer writing. It just seems like that is something he did for a long period of time. For me, it would probably be something like Sabbath or taking time off. Like, no one has to tell me on Fridays, Tony, make sure to take a Sabbath. Like, I'm going to do it whether you tell me or not because I have this inherent fear of being like engulfed by the needs of everyone. So I'm constantly like, yep, this is my day off. You don't need to tell me. But for some of you, that might be incredibly hard to do. And I guess as you look at your own story, what comes easy to you? What is the spiritual practice that you would just do whether God told you or anyone told you or not? You know what that is? This is the thing. We all have one or a couple. (laughs) Maybe you just go to the scriptures, easy. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's service. This is, I think, a really important point to make that we often don't recognize Sometimes we just feel like spiritual failures. The truth is, none of us is a total failure. Every single person in this room, whether this is your first day in church or you've been coming to church for 50 years, every single one of us has spiritual rhythms and practices that come easy to us based on the way God has shaped us over time. I think it's important for us to identify what those are. Do you know what yours are? The things that just come easy. It's like breathing. The second question I think I would ask us to consider is what spiritual practices do you need but often struggle to implement? And our stories inform our rhythms. Some are easy, some are less so. Yeah, most of us have things we will do easily. I will, I will practice Sabbath. You have to like literally restrain me not to. But intercessory prayer has been a much harder journey for me. Maybe this is because of the way I was taught to pray early on. I was taught, you know, you make a list of all the people in your life, all the things that care about you, you care about, and then every day you pray through that list, and about a month in, I was like stressed and guilty, feeling guilty whenever I missed a day, and I was like, I hate this. And the truth is, I, constant, like intercessory prayer is really hard for me to maintain, and it's taken me actually a lot of work to improve. 
I've had to read books. I've had to try all kinds of different practices. Something I was thinking about a lot and praying about on my sabbatical. This is the thing. I think God is inviting me to become a person who regularly intercedes for the people in my life because he wants me to be a little bit less selfish and self-consumed and a little more aware of other people, which is something I struggle with. I can be a very self-centered person. And I think God, through intercession, is wanting me to care about what other people are caring for and then also see God as a father who wants to give good gifts. And one of the ways to lean into the Father heart of God is to ask Him for things and see what He does. I think that's one of the things that I struggle with implementing and one of the things God is inviting me to cultivate a rhythm and a practice so that I care about people and I know the goodness of the Father. And I guess I just wonder this morning, based on your story, As you arrive this morning, do you have a sense of maybe what God is saying? Hey, I'd like you to focus on this practice, this rhythm, so that you love me more. So that your heart is more aligned with the kingdom and Jesus' heart for the world right, than it was yesterday. Do you know what that is for you? See, the thing is, No one arrives this morning fully, like, complete and developed and just like Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Because sometimes I think we come into church and we feel like we're rocking it. And sometimes we feel like we come into church and we just stink at everything. And both of those are not true. Some of us need to pay attention to the things we're doing well because we forget those things. Some of us need to pay attention to the things, man, I I need to grow in this because Jesus is challenging us out of our complacency, out of our stuck patterns so that we become more like him. And when you look at your story, my guess is you'll notice a few patterns that repeat. Why am I doing that again? Anyone ever had that thought? My hope as we sort of end, as I end this message is that, again, this message has nurtured your curiosity a little bit about your own story, about what God is doing in it. This is the thing. God wants to continue to transform and grow you. He wants to build on the masterpiece, the living poem you already are. Now, I want to invite the worship team up. Uh, We're going to do a a historic practice that the church has done since the very beginning. It's called communion. And one of the things that communion recognizes is that our hearts wander. It's kind of a long walk. I'm going to go all the way over here. I should have prepared a little better. Communion recognizes, I think, on a deep level that our hearts wander. 
and we choose things other than Jesus for life and for sustenance. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was hanging out with his friends and he grabbed a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he handed it to his brothers at the table and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Because he knew that he was the life they needed. And he took the wine at the table, and he gave thanks, and he said, this is my blood shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Because sometimes in our stories, our hearts wander like David's. Sometimes our eyes wander, sometimes our actions, actions depart from the ethic of the kingdom of God. And he provided a moment at that dinner and throughout history, the church has provided a moment for us to recognize this fact and celebrate communion as a way to say to Jesus, all right, as I take this bread and drink this cup, Jesus, I choose you. Like David writing Psalm 51, God, you are gracious, welcome me back. I want to invite the people serving communion to come up. And the way we do this is you'll come up this front. I invite you to sort of not just camp out here. There will be multiple people. It creates a bit of a bottleneck if we all do that. But before we walk up, uh, you know, Paul said sometimes it's helpful just to take a moment in silence. Just to reflect on our stories as it intersects with the story of Jesus giving his life for us. I'm going to invite you in the silence of this moment to say to God what you need to say. Maybe it's just thank you. Maybe it's I'm sorry. Maybe it's help. Just invite you in this moment before you celebrate communion, before you receive Jesus, the life of your life, just to turn to him, recognizing this is not just a dead, empty liturgy. This is a way that we interact with and encounter the living God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we bring these things into your presence. These cries for help, for forgiveness, for mercy, for guidance. We ask that you would meet us in this sacred communion as we receive your life. We choose you, Jesus. If you come into this place and you're not sure about Jesus, but you kind of want to walk up, just say, hey, give me a blessing. And we'll, we'll just give you a blessing that the Lord would direct your steps.
But just know if you do decide to receive communion today, you are choosing Jesus. You are choosing his kingdom. You are choosing his mercy and his grace. You are saying as you receive that bread into your mouth, Lord, I am yours. Shape my story, shape my steps. Thank you, Jesus.